Welcome to Free Burn. This is Matt Ballard, your host. This is the podcast where we talk all things mental and behavioral health in the first responder community. Real life firefighters, police officers, EMTs and paramedics, clinicians, and doctors. It's time we have the real conversation and burn the stigma behind first responder mental health, one podcast at a time. Welcome back, folks. This is Matt Balver, Freeburn 2023, your host. Today, we're going to sit down with Kelly Goodry. Uh, she's licensed. Licensed professional counselor. Professional counselor with an <laughs> S on it, which means supervisor, right? Supervisor, yeah. And all that, <laughs> what that means is um, people who want to become counselors have to go through a period of supervision with somebody who's been a counselor for at least five years and meets some other criteria. So that's all that yes. You've yeah. got some tenure then is what it means. It means I'm old, Matt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm right there with you, so don't, so don't feel. <laughs> uh, she's a wife, a uh, mother of two, um, lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Uh, she's got lots of stuff. Graduate with a Ph.D. in counseling, uh, counseling and counselor education from Texas Christian University. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. What else? You do EMDR, PCIT. What's PCIT? Yeah, so I am, I'm trained in EMDR, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about later, but I'm also trained in, it's called parent-child interaction therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I have a small private practice um, that I do a lot of work with families uh, and really that reattunement between parent and child. So when there's a lot of disruption in the family unit, um, it's a therapy that you do dyadic work with, so they're in the room together. I'm actually not even in the room, which is kind of a fun thing. Really, I'm in the I'm in the ear of the parent, and I'm coaching the parent through the session. That's um, pretty so, interesting. Yeah, it's a fun. It's super fun when I get to do it, and so and and it's super effective. Um, and and it's a it's a cool process to go through. That's cool. Yeah, I've never heard of that until I saw it in your bio. I actually looked it up and was like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So um. Yeah, I mean, published researcher in counseling and counselor education. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so um, through my doc program, I was able to help co-author some articles um, primarily on the supervision world. Um, things like should supervisees pay for supervision or not, uh, you know, mm -hmm. just different things like that. Um, and then um, I've done a lot of speaking around at conferences and, and things of that nature uh, as well. And then my dissertation um, will be published, uh, I think, next spring. So I have it. I had it put on hold for a little while to see if I was going to do some articles from it. But um, my dissertation will get published as well. Can you tell us what that's going to be over? My dissertation was on um, actually with parent-child interaction therapy because it was mm -hmm. traditionally made for kids with oppositional defiant disorder, which is a lot of behavior problems, right? Um, and I saw this pressing kind of need for it to also have a trauma component. And so mm -hmm. researching from the world of PCIT has a pretty tight-knit community. So just kind of looking through um, all of the therapists that are out there that are doing that kind of work and asking, is a trauma component necessary? And if so, what needs to be a part of that? And the cool part is, is that they're actually developing one in Australia right now, and they're utilizing a lot of the data that I had to help inform different parts of, of those modules. So that's um, pretty cool. What the, 
community said, yeah, it was really awesome to, to see. And um, hands down, a lot of seasoned um, PCIT therapists saw the need for a trauma component to be developed and utilized in the world of parent-child yeah. work. So. That's awesome. I didn't know that part of you, right? I know the fire in the police side of you, you know, because yeah. uh, for people that don't know, she's with the readiness group. And uh, I hope awesome group. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, awesome group. They do our oversight for our city. Um, I can't even say enough. I mean, what y'all do for us is amazing, you know. So it's cool to see you're not only having an effect with firefighters, police officers, responders, first responders, but you're also having an, a positive effect with families and kids. So that's awesome to know. I actually love working with the first responder family because um, there's a lot of work-life spillover that is very prevalent in that. And there's a sense of pride that comes with being a first responder. And it's not, it's the first responder themselves, yes, but it's also the family. There's a lot of pride that comes along with that. Um, And and so we see, and then all the things that go into that, you know, the shift work and the danger and the exposure and and people forget that there's a family at home that you're essentially putting your life on the line every time you go out on a call um, and your family is at home, you know, praying that you're coming back home to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that work-life spillover is a huge thing. So it's one of my favorite things because we'll see with the chronic and critical stressors that might build, we'll see a lot of times some family dysfunction, you know, uh, with readiness group, just that background, I've run the referral program for the nine city grant that we were a part of, um, since its inception. And Mm -hmm. the number one thing I hear is my spouse told me I had to get help. Like it's always from the family angle or from somebody who knows them well, because it's now impacting relationships. It's impacting their ability to come home and be the best dad or mom that they can be or whatever that is. And yeah. um, so that part for me, I get a, a ton of passion from, um, and it's, uh, I love doing the family side of, of the first responder world. It's interesting to know that you, you have that passion because there's some stuff that we need to talk about because okay. I have some ideas for family stuff. So that's cool. All right. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've been with y'all for I'm trying to think now. Officially, I think about seven or eight months. Yeah, I think January is when. Yeah, I think uh, January is when we started. It was official. It took a little while because grants always do that to get kind of up and running. Yeah. But officially, I think January. Yeah. And I mean, we we are already seeing the effect that it's having in our department as far as like the resources and getting people to where they need to be in a pretty daggone fast manner. You know, I've seen it happen like pretty fast. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been great so far and I'm, I'm looking forward to the future, you know, what, what it brings. So thank yeah, y'all. Well, for, thank for you do- guys. You know, the, the, the thing about that is, and, and I don't know um, how much, if I'm going into it too much now, tell me and I'll stop. But no, you're good. Um, when you look at resources in the community, especially in the first responder world, you know, you can odd hours and odd shifts and you don't have like I I know the counseling side the private practice side and a lot of counselors are like okay every Thursday at three you need to be here and (laughs) that just doesn't work for first responders right like it's not going to be every Thursday at three Um, and so finding when you're looking at different resources that are out there 
finding mm-hmm. resources that are culturally aware of what it means to be a first responder. Um, maybe even have some experience, like maybe they've done a ride along or maybe they, whatever that experience is, but at least they have some, some base level knowledge. It would be great if they had more than that. Um, yeah. but looking for at least that. And then I think hands down, you cannot go to somebody that doesn't have a solid background in some kind of a trauma therapy, because whether your, your reason for seeking out help is trauma related or not, you have mm-hmm. trauma the first responder by the nature, but purely by the nature of your job. Yeah. Those two things um, would be my huge encouragement for people who do start to look for counselors. Um, Mm -hmm. That might be good fits for the first responder. It's very important. It is very important in my book to to find not only vetted counselors, but but vetted doctors. I mean, all the way down the line, anybody that you're coming, coming in contact with when you're in a, you know, in a bad situation, you need to, they need to, they need to have some type of experience dealing with people like us, first responders, because we're just, we're different. I mean, sometimes in bad ways, sometimes in good ways, I guess you could say. (laughs) You probably know know that. It's that warrior mentality though, you know, and what I, what I want to say about that is when it comes down to it, you're human. Yes. However, the the key difference that I see is those professionals, doctors, counselors, whomever they are, have a window of opportunity because you all first responders by nature are fixers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly looking how to help others as opposed to looking how to help yourself. So when you finally do lean into that resource, here's my window. And if I better be darn good. At, at getting you in that window because that's my chance. And I think that yeah. is where the culturally aware piece becomes super important as people look for those community resources. Yeah. The more people that I've talked to, whether through podcast or just, you know, in general that are first responders, there's very few of them that, that I have talked to that have said they went to one counselor and that was, that was the fit. A lot of times it's I've been to one counselor because it was through, you know, an EAP program or just whatever it may be. And it's like, yeah, they get there and either their counselor's like, they can't handle what they're saying, what they're talking about, or yeah. it's the hand of a CD. I've heard all kinds of stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it's very I know important. This very well. Yeah. We talk about yep. that story a lot because, and, and that's, I think when that particular individual first reached out and he tells his story all over the place, but when he first reached out, even um, the EAP called them back after like three weeks and their verbiage to him was, we finally found someone that was willing to talk to you. And I'm like, what? They said what to you? <laughs> so even yeah. that, you know, the fact that he still went after hearing that piece of it was amazing. And then to just get handed a CD is like, I don't know. When um, I heard his story and he, he he's going to be on the podcast pretty soon. Yeah. He'll probably come that. on before this one airs, but uh, okay because we've recorded with him, but uh, when it, when I heard his story, it was just like, you got to be kidding me, dude. That really happened. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that really happened. So yeah. Yeah. It's sad it's, in one aspect, but at the same time, it's just very important for us to have those. Yeah. The right and people. It's too, the right people, because it's so true. Like it's this window and it's, it's that opportunity to lean into that resource um, and that resource to be able to say, I got you. I get it. I understand y- your culture. I understand, you know, not to say I get everything you go through, but I at least right. understand 
like the the shift work, the trauma, the all of the things that people who are not first responders just don't experience on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, for sure. So can you kind of get into how you got started with readiness group and what that looked like for you and how you started with the first responders? Yeah. Um, so I've always kind of had an interest in the forensic world of psychology, which first responders would kind of fall into that. I actually have my master's in forensic psychology. Um, and so, um, there's always been kind of a, a tug. And then in my doc program, I met, uh, Dr. Brenda Tillman. I think she's been mentioned on several of your podcasts too. A few of them, yes. <laughs> yeah. So Brenda and I were in our doc program together at TCU. And um, one day I was, uh, I actually just moved to DF or back to DFW from the Houston area. Um, but I was down in Houston and they had just started this grant program with the city of Cedar Hill. Uh, and part of it was running referrals. And right. so she called me and said, hey, Kelly, would you be interested in managing the referral side of this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I did it part time for about a year. That's all I did was the referrals. And mm -hmm. then after that, her and um, her partner, Erica, um, which they're a mother daughter duo. And they'll tell you that also. But um, it took me a while to figure that one out. Did you did it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're a mother daughter duo and they're man, they're dynamic. They're awesome. Yeah, Awesome. Um, but they offered me, they asked if I wanted to come on full time to help with building the curriculum, providing trainings, uh, continuing to run referral management. And then as it has grown, obviously our referral management and all of that has grown as well. So I've yeah. been super blessed to, to come alongside. I, when I was in the DOC program was my first uh, exposure to the critical incident stress management um, program. And and so I've been a trained uh, CISM peer team member since, I don't know, 20, probably for 10 years about-ish. Yeah. And so um, so that's kind of my first exposure. And it's just kind of grown from there, which has been, it's it's been a phenomenal ride. I'm loving every second of it. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. So a little bit about EMDR therapy. Can we break into that a little bit? And just kind of yeah. explain it. We've, we've talked about it on several podcasts. And I just want to kind of, for the people that don't know what the first responders or wives, spouses or whatever that do, don't really know about EMDR therapy. And just kind of break it down for them and let them know what it, what it, what it is and kind of how it works, I guess. Okay. Ask questions too, because sometimes I feel like I make perfect sense, but it doesn't always <laughs> come across that way. So I will. <laughs> um, uh, so what e EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, which is a whole lot of words, uh, but basically the developer of it, when she was doing all of the research on it, um, used eye movements. That's where that comes from, right? Um, yep. To cross the midline of your brain. And what that does, it's kind of like in REM sleep. Have you ever seen little kids when they're asleep and their eyes dart back and forth? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we process trauma in our sleep cycle, which is the REM sleep cycle in particular. And, um, and so if, if we're not able to process it correctly for a lot of reasons, that doesn't mm -hmm. happen and it doesn't get put in the part of the, the brain that it needs to. And what, I'm, what EMDR does is it opens up both sides of the brain through what's called bilateral stimulation, okay. um, which was originally eye movement. Now there's a lot of ways they're doing that. So um, if I'm doing it telehealth, I actually have a, 
program that does a ball on the screen back and forth for people. Um, some people will use light bars even, um, so a light will go back and forth. Um, some people okay, I'm going to stop you real quick. Okay. So you can do it online. Oh, yeah. You can do EMDR online. I did not know that because mm -hmm. all the sessions that I did was actually in person. So that's that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In fact, um, when I'm doing because I'm moving from Houston, I'm now primarily online. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so I'll either use the ball for some people. That's a little triggering even. So I'll use um, tapping where they tap themselves and um, I turn on maybe an audio. So they go to the same beat and it's still that rhythmic. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there are several ways to engage bilateral stimulation. The more popular way now is um, they're called tappers and you'll hold them in each of your hands and then it vibrates back and forth. That's, that's um, what I do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so the, the really cool part about EMDR is that um, it doesn't require a ton of talking, you mm -hmm. know, and, and a lot of people find comfort in that because a big fear for therapy is I'm going to go in and it's like the traditional, let me sit on the couch and tell you all of my feelings, the, the F word that everybody's. Oh, yeah. doing, right? <laughs> yep. um, and so that's the kind of the cool part is that uh, it's not really about your feelings. It's about whatever it is that, that is triggering, you know, and what I hear people describe it as when they've gone through a critical incident is mm -hmm. they'll say it takes a nightmare and it turns it into a memory. Um, it doesn't yeah. make it a good memory by any mm -hmm. stretch, but it also doesn't have the same emotional attachment that it had before maybe you processed it through both by opening up both sides of the brain. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's it. It's it's yeah. weird. Like when I first started doing, it, I was like, what the heck is going on? You know, but um, you just got to accept it for what it is and just go with it. And yeah. if you do that, in my experience, if you just let it, let it do it, what it's supposed to do, it's, it can be transforming for some people. Yeah. It they was for it me. Voodoo. A lot of people will tell me it's like voodoo, Kelly. Yes. <laughs> so. Yep. Like, how in the heck is this working? But, and, yeah. and you're right. It's like, it's not like those memories ever go away, but it's like, for me, it was like they, it helped me understand a little bit easier how to deal with those things and not have as big of an impact on me is what they were having yeah. on me, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, well, and part of what's happening with that, right, is when we go through traumatic incidents, part of what happens is our brain shuts down two parts of the brain when we experience something super traumatic. One is your prefrontal cortex, which is right behind your forehead here. It's that kind of walnut shape. Yep. That's the neocortex. And the front part is your prefrontal cortex. Um, that's responsible for, like, logic, uh, working memory, goal setting. It's what makes you human, right? It's yes. what gives us the ability to engage in this conversation and understand each other and all of that good stuff. So mm -hmm. we don't need that part for survival. So right. that part gets shut down. The other part that gets shut down is back here. It's called your hippocampus. Um, and that's kind of like a filing cabinet. It stores long-term memory. And that's the part when it's shut down that we don't put the traumatic event away. We don't put it where it needs to go because it's shut down, right? And okay. so it kind of lives elsewhere in your brain. And what EMDR, part of what EMDR is doing is opening that back up so you can file it away. And yep. you can, then I bring up the event, 
it still sucks, but I get to put it right back and I don't have to go back and relive it. Right. I get to so, tell my brain it's not there living it anymore. Yeah. So the hippocampus, is that where it actually stores, stores it away, so to speak? Yeah. It's like our storing, you know, our, our storage cabinets of, of the brain. It's the long-term memory part of your brain. Yeah. And then and they've done post-mortem studies on, on individuals and people who have um, complex trauma or mm -hmm. a lot of trauma, um, their hippocampus is the size, it's supposed to be the size of a small fruit and theirs is the size of a small pea. Um, really? So it's extremely diminished if they're not actively working to reopen that up and put things where they belong. I guess just because it's not being used, right? Right. Use it or lose it. That that yeah. saying has not faded in neuro yeah, right. in the brain research. So. so the prefrontal cortex, is that the part of the brain that jumps with the like cortisol levels whenever the tones go off and we go into a fight or flight? Is that what that is? How does that work? So that actually is done in kind of your fight, flight, or freeze mechanism, which is more your amygdala. It, okay. It's called that some people will call it like the caveman brain, right? Um, it's the oldest part of your brain and it, and we need it for survival. It's what tells us, Hey, you need to run, you need to fight. Like it's all of that mechanism. Um, and what it, when it senses danger, it tells the prefrontal cortex, okay, turn off. Cause we don't need you right now. Um, so that's called cortical inhibition. Um, so it sends all of the, the right chemicals to that part of the brain to say, we don't need you right now. And what we need is cortical facilitation in the aftermath of an event to turn that part of your brain back on. Um, and what they're showing is if you don't do something intentional to re-engage safety, that's what we call it is return to safety, right? Okay, get your brain to go back down or bring chaos to calm. If you're not doing something intentional, sometimes that process on your, on our, on your own takes four to six hours. But if you engage resources, if you do certain things, and there's a lot of tactics and strategies out there, you can bring yourself back down in 20 to 30 minutes. Okay. And when you say bring yourself back down, is that talking about cortisol levels, or just chemicals in general? You yeah, see, I've heard, I've, I've heard, I've heard, I've had people tell me that it could take 24 hours for cortisol levels to level off. I've heard longer than that. So, I mean... Well, how do well, we know? <laughs> yeah. Well, think about this too, right? Right now you guys are 4896. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So for 48 hours, you're living with a little bit of that stress response activated because sure. you don't know when the tones are going to ring. Yep. Um, and when they do go off, you don't know, is it going to be a really bad one? Is it going to be a cat stuck in the tree? Is it gonna, like, it, you don't know what that call is going to be until you right. start hearing stuff on the radio come through. So your brain, when you go to work, your brain is already a little bit there, right? Yes. And so your cortisol level for first responders, it, if you're on shift and you're going from call to call to call, it can take significantly longer because you're stressing that system for much longer. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And chronic stress can do the same thing, right? So when you look at a person's chronic stressors, relationships, finances, the kids, the, I mean, you name it, right? All the stuff that we deal with kind of on a daily basis. If all of that stuff just keeps cumulative, it's a cumulative effect. It can mm -hmm. turn into your bot. Your brain can't distinguish is this critical or chronic. It just knows it's super overwhelmed. 
Yeah. So the amygdala, amygdala, duh, how you say it? Amygdala. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a mouthful for me, especially. <laughs> it's a lot of consonants. <laughs> yes. So that part of the brain is actually the fight or flight part of the brain. Yep. So I was thinking it was a prefrontal cortex, but it's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your prefrontal cortex is, is more about, um, like, like it can sit and have a logical conversation or, you mm-hmm. know, like think about this because you have, um, three girls, right? Yes. When, when they were little, did any of them just like have over the top tantrum where like that whole All the like, time they still do it. What are you talking about? get through to them it's like hey yeah. just take a deep breath like just calm down right you can't that that is when that front part is like totally not working oh yeah. yeah it's completely shut down so what i see like if i'm working sometimes with first responder families right it's like no they need to listen no they need to do what i say well when they're in that hundred yard stare they're not hearing anything that you say so wait until they come back and then talk to them. And it's no different than a guy at the station. If they're totally. Oh, absolutely it's not. I've seen some guys at the station like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if I'm they're totally. I'm shift my shift faces. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're totally in the red. It's in one ear and out the other. And they're not hearing anything until they can, they can bring that front part of the brain back on. So. Yeah. I've been there more than once. No, I hate to admit it, but I have. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, a few times. here's the secret. We all have. Me <laughs> yeah, too. I know. Me too. <laughs> right. yeah. So, yeah, that's very interesting. I like to hear how that works, you know, obviously because I've been through some stuff. People know that, but uh, I want to know as much as I can about it. So, you know, I'm not a doctor, yeah. but it's very interesting to me how the brain works and why we go through some of the stuff that we go through. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's any consolation, my daughter told me just this last week that, um, you know, you know, mom, the real doctor, what would they tell? (laughs) So, like, is she really? Oh yeah, she's only eight, and she's already. I'm like, well, but yeah. But the thing that I think is so important, and what you just hit on, right, is Mm -hmm. there's this huge stigma about mental health, and and that's why I love your message, right? Like, let's burn the stigma. Yeah, And what educating on things like the neuroscience behind trauma mm-hmm. does is it helps to break that stigma because now it's not this bunch of fluff. It's like, oh, you mean my body, my body did that? My brain did that to help protect me? And now I just got to figure out how to process it the right way, right? Yeah. There's so much science behind it that we, it's become fluff because it's been viewed as a weakness. But if we can educate on hey this is a legit thing and this actually happens you know there's a book out there called um why zebras don't get ulcers Mm. and i mean if you really think about it like they graze all day but they don't lay around thinking i wonder when the next cheetah is gonna attack or i wonder like they just wait and when the attack happens they run for their lives right and it ends one way or another, and they either go back to grazing or they don't. They just don't um, worry about but, it. But they don't worry about it. And so if you think about that, the impact on our physical and mental well-being of the chronic and critical stressors that we in as humans, and then specifically it's amped up with first responders face, what it's doing in our bodies 
is mm -hmm. uh, you know we have to fight hard against that. Yeah. You know, even even through all the therapy and stuff that I've done, I still struggle like everybody does. But you know, the resiliency end of it, you know, from the classes and stuff that I've taken from y'all is what kind of keeps me going. You know, being mm -hmm. able to bounce back quicker than what I normally. Sometimes it's a little bit longer. You know, that bounce back is not as fast. Yeah, I mean, it's the tools it's and the techniques. <laughs> it's like, I'm yeah. just going to crawl my way out of this, right? Yeah. So it's not like you, you know, you, you go do this EMDR therapy or you go to counseling and it, everything is, that's it. You know, I mean, you're, you're healed and it's never going to come back. But for me, it wasn't like that. And I don't think, you know, most people that I've talked to, it's not like that either. It's, you know, it's a day by day deal, just like life, you know. So sure. what do you think has changed in the fire service that is causing us to lose brothers and sisters not only in fire service but um the first responder community in general like the numbers i hate to say they're numbers because they're not they're actually people right that have taken their lives to suicide but have you all seen anything that you can kind of like almost pinpoint or is it just a a lot of stuff together that's causing people to take their lives like that so the majority of the time when you start to hear a story behind somebody who has taken their life, um, you start to hear all of the chronic stressors that they were facing but didn't feel like they could talk to anyone about. And then there's usually a critical incident that is kind of the tipping point, right? It's kind of yeah. the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, and I think that um, I don't know that there's anything different in the fire service from before now. I think societally, there's different pressures that first responders are facing. Um, you know, I, so I think that to some degree, there's that at play. I do think that the the ugliness of COVID-19 and everything that that brought into the first responder world, I mean, you know, we work a lot with educators as well. And just like with them and you, it was like every week there is a different mandate at the state level that you're having to change and follow and have new protocols for. And how are we responding to this now? And what are we wearing in? And what I mean, so all of that, right? It was just like, and I don't know that we're fully, I think we're in a better spot from COVID anyway. I don't know that mm -hmm. we're fully recovered from all of that though, um, yeah. in a lot of our areas of our world. So, um, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, but I do think that what we're missing is the resources for, and, and, and the psychological safety that needs to happen within agencies and departments for people to feel like it's okay to reach out for help, you yeah. know, and whether that's the relationship or the really awful call they went on, I don't really care, but if they feel like they need help, they feel like they, they need to feel like they can ask. For it. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of all that, like you said, you know, some stuff has changed since the, you know, the time that I've been in the fire service, as far as like the family aspect, mm -hmm. going from the family aspect to a more company driven environment. Does that make sense? Sure. I don't know if that plays a part in any kind of mental health stuff. I can't see how it would not, you know, I think it does to some degree. There's other things too, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to see if that does play a part. Yeah. You know? Well, and when you think about in the world of first responders, 
I mean, it is truly a brotherhood, a sisterhood. It is like, you know, you're, you got each other's backs. It's, we mm. always joke, like it's a hard, uh, it's a hard thing to break into if people want to even help because it's like, we don't trust you. Like, who are you? You know? Um, and so I think from that angle, you know, that's, it is, it's this family. You spend so much time at a station that you know some of those people's routines, you know, better than maybe even their own kids do sometimes, just depending, yeah. it, you know. And so I think that from that side of it, if it starts to shift the dynamic to, oh, we got to, you know, we're more corporate or we're more company driven. Um, and, and there's company driven is not really a good word because you guys together have a mission together and yes. i think that goes into the family side of it right but yeah. bottom dollar driven maybe is a better way to say that um it certainly takes it's it's almost like a collision of values because our value is to help serve and protect and we do that together it's i'm serving and protecting my community and the people to the left and the right of me yes versus i gotta do this to make money for the city or i gotta do this to whatever else is at play there you know Yep. Um, and so it certainly is a value conflict from, and, and money's important. I mean, sure it, it is. at the day, however, that doesn't feel good because those, we have things, to feed our families for sure. For sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I could see how that would play again. It's just an added chronic. It's a professional chronic stressor. If you're facing that at a, at a department for sure. Yeah. So branching out of that a little bit, moral injury. We've kind of talked about this a little bit yeah. in the past, so I'm very interested. I've heard it brought up a few times, and I don't, I don't really know a whole lot about it. So, if you know something, I'm sure you do. Can you touch <laughs> on that and dive a little bit, a little bit deeper into that? Yeah, I know about, um, and I say that because when you and I first started talking about it, I was like, okay, like in my head, I think I know what that means, but it's not like a topic that we covered in any of my educational, right? So I went on this mission to start looking. And to be quite honest, there's not a lot of hard research. Mm -hmm. they're, they're starting to do a lot more. They're starting to come out with outcome measures that, that do moral injury and all of that, right? At the end of the day, how I make sense of that is um, anyone who kind of experiences a significant betrayal in terms of trustworthiness, um, genuineness, either of themselves or by the people that are around them. Because, you know, like if it, if it puts you in a moral conflict, so maybe you're put in a position where, like I think about law enforcement officers, sometimes they're put in positions where they have to take someone's life. Sure. That could be a moral conflict for them. Um, and then you look at the other thing of, you know, just um, betrayals through gossip or betrayals through, you know, you guys are such a tight knit family that sometimes that feels very, like, very be betraying and it's this huge moral injury. So it's anything mm. that kind of impacts you on that psychological, spiritual, um, you know, behavioral kind of well-being. And the hard part about that is we can't see it. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that is so like, I can see when I'm cut. I can yes. see that when I bleed. Yeah, I can't see when my head hurts or when my brain hurts or something, you know, betrays me and I feel very upset about that. I can't physically see that. So it's not tangible. And I think it makes that concept harder. Yeah. It, it, with you saying that, it, it, for me, like any kind of psychological illness, right, like PTSD or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, I know whenever I was going through it, it was like 
it's it's very scary in one sense because you really don't have control over it, right? Like if you got a cut on your arm, you can pretty much control that. Any other illness, you can pretty much control for the most part. And I guess you can, but you got to get to the right thing to be able to control it. And it's just not yeah. something as common as going to a doctor and say, hey, you know, most of the time it's not just give you a pill and you're, you're done or put a Band-Aid on it and you're done. It, it, right. It's a lot more work than that sometimes. So yeah. it can get and scary. I think that's, what, that's what feeds the stigma. You know, yeah. it's like people can't read or feel what you're experiencing internally. And so it's really hard because there's not a cast on your leg, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part of mental health is part of what feeds the stigma behind they're crazy or, <clears throat> excuse me, or they're making yep. that up where it's really not as bad as they're saying it is. Yeah. Um, we don't know that person, how they're experiencing it. We also don't know what they come to the table with. Um, and I think that piece of people forget that they don't, you know, I'm going to tell you people who are in helping professions oftentimes, and it's in a blanket statement for everyone, but there's a large majority that have some complex trauma from childhood. Even. Yeah. Um, I've seen that more so, too. Yeah. Um, and so there's just, you know, you don't know what has stacked up for people and you don't know uh, what they've lived through or what they're living with or what's come back up from 20 years ago that they sure. thought they had been resolved, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's crazy how that works. Yeah. And that, that has rang true for quite a few people that I've talked to. They've, they brought trauma in with them into the fire service. Mm-hmm. So. And a lot of times what they do, like if you think about it, fire service, law enforcement, all of it, it provides a ton of structure and stability. And and so when you come from a chaotic, unstable background with a lot of trauma, that sense of security and stability and all of that feels really good, right? And so yeah. there's a piece of it that feels very safe. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of, it makes sense. But a lot of times people don't realize that that trauma it tends to pop its ugly head back up later if they've not processed. Yeah. Right. So, um, can you tell us like, are there any specific, uh, self-care practices or things that we can do just to kind of, you know, if we're, if we're struggling with stuff like we normally do as first responders, what's some stuff that we can do to kind of break out of that, you know, on a, on a personal level? You, how long do we have? <laughs> I'm just kidding. As long as you need. <laughs> um, I think it's very yeah. important that people know that for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, so at, with readiness group, we approach resiliency. A lot of times people think of bounce back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly, there's something for bounce back. That's super important. But why as a society, and we do this all the time, we do it with our kids. We do it with, with the first responder world, right? Um, if I were to ask you a year ago, what is your what is your resiliency wellness for your first responders there look like? What what would you have had in place? Honestly, probably not much at all. I mean, yeah, a lot of really first responders have had for a while, like at least a critical incident team. So we didn't even have that. <clears throat> And you guys do now. So that's the good news, right? 
Um, But that the critical incident team is where a lot of first responder, the first responder world has been focused. And what that does is it catches people downstream, right? It's after, it's in the aftermath and there's a need for it. And I'm not saying that like, don't get rid of that. No, we need that, right? Yeah. So we need that. In addition to that, we've got to have ways to get, I call it getting left of boom or, you know, getting upstream. So using Mm -hmm. upstream tactics. And then also our in-the-moment strategies. What do I do when I'm in the moment and I'm being required to respond, but, oh, gosh, I just got triggered. And how do I bring myself back down so I can pay attention to my surroundings of what I need to be attending to, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we call it full-scale resiliency, and we call, we kind of view it as a rhythm. So this is like a like life is kind of like a battle, and so you got to have a rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can put things in place that – help clear stuff off of our plate. And here's all the things I have finances, I have grief, I have relationship issues, I've got kids, I've got, you know, all of the things that we deal with in life. Um, And if I can work stuff, if I can keep my chronic stressors low, um, and then work to keep my ability to cope with critical stressors high, then I have the space in my life to pursue what I love to pursue. My, we call them the four P's, peace, purpose, passion, and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you think about that, right, if I have to, if I'm thinking upstream, like what am I doing on the daily? What are my little tiny habits that help push me in the direction of the life that I want to live? Um, and so there are very well-researched ways to go about putting daily habits. What I'm going to tell you, Matt, is that it is a very specific thing for everyone. It, what yeah. works for me might not work for you, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so things that we recommend uh, kind of looking at, like the areas we recommend looking at, are um, we, we think about learning how to have control over your nervous system. So we call it hacking your nervous system. Um, and doing that through what's called top-down, bottom-up, and environmental ways, right? So top-down would be your cognitive, working to, to shift your mindset, working to find just right challenges. They're not so hard that they they are um, so challenging that they provide anxiety for you, but they're not so easy that they're boring, like I'm going to do the just right challenge kind of a thing. Your bottom-up techniques are things like breathing strategies. Um, the number one way to control your nervous system is through breath work. Right. Um, and when I tell clients that, especially some of the teens that I work with, they roll their eyes at me, right? Like you're going to make me breathe. (laughs) Listen to her because it does work. (laughs) I mean, our Navy SEALs go through days of training on how to tactical breathe because they know that that is, we have a direct control to our autonomic nervous system through our breath. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to practice a breathing strategy, I would recommend finding ones that um, where you inhale shorter than you exhale. So you're, you know, they do do like box breathing is pretty popular, but they're now showing that if you can exhale longer. So some people are inhaling for four, holding for four, and then exhaling for six. Yep. Um, and they're showing that that is what activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of like putting the brakes on. Yeah. On your body. Right. Mm -hmm. So that would be one. Um, And then environmental stuff. If you can change your environment, try. And if you can't, 
then we say, start to learn how to accept it. How do I tolerate it? Because I can't change it. You know, yeah. we call it drop the rope. Sometimes yep. you just got to drop the rope. Sometimes um, you just got to drop the rope and move on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another thing that I think has to happen, I say these two, there's, we have like, I could probably do a five day training on all of this, right? Because I, we just love it that much. But mm-hmm. if I had to pick one more to talk about that I think is imperative in the world of first responders is every person in your department should be a peer. Yeah. They should know how to have a conversation that's purposeful. They should know how to walk you through something, whether that's chronic or critical, and those conversations look a little different as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and they should know how to activate your strengths and resources to get you the help that you need so that if things are, if shit's hitting the fan, you're getting a little bit better instead of a little bit worse each day. Yes. The number one thing that you can do to help yourself is peer something. Know yeah. your tribe and know who your people are and start talking about things. Mm-hmm. It's we notice the changes for some of us. We don't know what to do when we see those changes. And I think that's getting educated yeah. on how, how to help those, those people that have, you know, they're struggling with whatever, whether it be calls or stuff at home or whatever, just general life stuff. So yeah. knowing your people is like, you got to know your people from the top down and the bottom up, you know, whatever that is. And sometimes Matt, it's not the people at the station. It's somebody else who can be that person for you. And that's okay. Um, it's just knowing who that is and not being afraid to lean into those conversations, you know? Yeah. And what we hear all the time is, oh, I don't want to burden that person. Um, or I don't want to be vulnerable or no, I'm fine. All of the things that get in the way of those conversations. But Mm -hmm. if you start to recognize who are the people in my life that I get kind of nitty gritty with, I tell them the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever that is. Um, knowing who the, like, and for me, like my husband is not my, he's an aircraft mechanic, right? Like mm-hmm. he's not my forensic file person for work. I start talking <laughs> about work stuff and his eyes are like, oh, whatever, you know? <laughs> um, but so he's a I great dude, to, by the way. Ah, uh, thank you. He is a pretty good dude. He said to me, can I be on Matt's podcast? I'm like, what are you going to do? Come about? on. Yeah. We'll talk about <laughs> something. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but knowing, so for work, I don't go to him all the time. If I, yeah. if I need to, he'll listen, right? But it's not going to be the same type of conversation that I'm going to get if I call Brenda or Erica or another clinical colleague that I, that I can right. kind of get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, so knowing who your people are and for what. Um, and if you're finding that you're in a conversation with someone and they don't have a person, or if you're listening to this and you're going, I don't know that I have that person. That's when looking at a referral is maybe a really good option, right? Because yep. mm-hmm. number one, a professional can be that person in the interim and they can help you build that for yourself so that you start to develop those relationships where you feel comfortable and psychologically safe enough to have those vulnerable conversations. Yeah. And I think a big problem with the fire service right now, I say fire service, because I mean, obviously that's where, where I'm at, but I'm sure mm-hmm. it's across the board is first responders, but um it's trying to get to people before they get to that breaking point. Yeah. And that all draws back to the stigma and even to the family oriented type stuff and really knowing our people. 
I think that's why mm-hmm. it's super important to have that family orient, oriented atmosphere or culture, yeah. you know, so that to me, I just, I think we need to be close like that close as family yeah. and watch for each other. When stuff goes wrong, we know it, we see it and we can try to get to them fast and be impactful and try to get them yeah. straightened out. Yeah. As quick as the number one asset in the firehouse is that kitchen table, you know, sure. and I'm so sad because the, all of the firehouses now are going to bunks and, and it's not that kind of open community room and it's taking yeah. some of that sense of community away a little bit. And, um, and so utilizing that kitchen table to sit down and just, man, that was a weird one. You know, what's sticking for you or, or like uh, we were, you were in the class, I think when, uh, when this happened and the guy said, I just look at my guys and I say, is your family okay? And when they say yes, I say, well, what curled up your ass? <laughs> yep, sure was. I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. But it's leaning into those conversations and knowing like knowing your people, we were teaching a class, uh, not the, about a week or so ago. Um, and it was a, it was a mixed crowd. And so there was dispatch and police and fire. I mean, it was a big group and mm-hmm. we just had them introduced. So we said name, job, family, you know, just some different things so we could know a little bit about them. And one of the, um, individuals in there said, Oh, I'm married and this and that. And the three people sitting next to her that were her colleagues said, you're married really and yeah and it's that kind of stuff that we lose that sense of social connection um when we go in and we just get so busy doing what we're doing and we we or we're doom scrolling or we're whatever and we're not recognizing the the value in those relationships of the people sitting to the left and the right of us yeah that to me that's real right because i've seen it i've seen the change happen and i don't like it I want to get back to where we were 15, you know, 10, 15 years ago where we had that, I'm not saying that we don't have that camaraderie because we do, but it was like getting together with our, our brothers and sisters that we work with off the job with our families and doing stuff, you know, that's just, that's something that I miss, you know, and I hope that, I hope that we can switch back to doing more of that, you know, yeah. sooner. Well, the one thing, and you know this better than anybody, but um, culture is is the difference maker, and it's done through story, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it has to be supported from the top, but if it doesn't come from the line level to shift that, it's not going to, it's going to feel like it's being pushed down as opposed to, no, we're going to do this because it matters that much to us. Yeah. And so that, that groundswell effect is imperative when it comes yep. to this. Mm. It's got to figure out how to, you know, for the, the departments that are lacking in some of that, just figure out how to get that back, you know, and make that culture grow as far as um, the camaraderie and the brotherhood and wanting to be at work, you know, with yeah. your brothers. Yeah. You got to have those people, man. I mean, to me, I want them to, to know as much about me as I know about them because our lives are literally uh, depending on each other sometimes. So. Oh my gosh, hands down. Yeah, hands down. So important. So, what else can you add? Good advice Uh, that you can add to to help (laughs) us out with what we do. One thing that I will say is the more that you can advocate for this stuff, if you find value, right, share your story, share it often would be an encouragement. 
but also the advocating part. Um, we're starting now to see legislative changes um, more on the police side than the fire side. Um, a lot of cities are saying, well, if we're going to do that for police, we're just going to do it for fire too, which is mm -hmm. awesome. It's really cool to see them, them include all first responders in that. Um, but advocating for it, being able to have a voice and say, like, what you're doing, you know, spreading the word of like, look, we see some shit out there. Like we, and, and did we sign up for the job? Sure. Does it mean that I don't, I need to just pretend I don't see that stuff? Yeah. No, right? Like our bodies are, and our brains, we've got to figure out because we need first responders. We need yep. first responders. Mm -hmm. um, you guys were essential workers. I'm using air quotes for a reason. I mean, yep. hello, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so finding ways to advocate for that, I think um, is, I, I just love what you're doing with this. And I think that would be something because we are seeing more and more legislative changes when it comes to mental health for the first responder, not for the community. It's always been community focused. And now we're starting to see yeah. it be turned inward to the, the first responder community. So. Well, with that being said, we also have to have people like y'all that are willing to come in and do what y'all do, you know, because without y'all it wouldn't be possible. I mean, yeah, we could probably find resources on our own, but how long would that take y'all? That could take years to find the right people. So y'all make it almost easy for us to be able to get the training, to get the, the right resources and just the oversight for our programs and everything else. So y'all are just as important as our, us as first responders, in my opinion, as far as the mental health stuff. So. Or, and I'll say, and, um, and, you know, I, I think that it's organizations that are open to that too. Yeah. There's a lot of good resources out there and there's a lot of bad resources out there. And mm -hmm. so knowing, you know, it, when you're talking to somebody and making sure that they do understand and that they do know um, the first responder world and what it is that you guys deal with, um, because again, it's kind of like getting a guy in a counseling room. It's the same thing with leadership. You've got a window, right? You've got a window to yeah. say, all right, look, and they need the easy button. So if you're looking at doing something in your department, finding ways to make it easy so and and getting that groundswell effect um you know those it, it goes a really long way yeah so one more thing what advice would you give to a fire department that has no resources right now i mean somebody that's listening right now doesn't small departments are the first things that pop in my mind because they yeah. a lot of them just don't have the 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 money there the budgets there to uh, support peer teams. So what are some simple things that they can do to have an effective way of change in their, their, their departments as far as their people? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and so there are a lot more free resources that I'm seeing popping up too, right? And I know like IAFF has a ton of free resources and training. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that stuff that comes at the international level, um, there's another really great free resource um, called PCIS, it's Post Critical Incident Seminar. It's down in Huntsville, Texas. Um, they have several PCISs around the nation, um, but Huntsville is the one that's local to, to local, local to Texas. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, um, and, and so learning maybe if you have questions, right, learning different free resources that are out there. Um, there are some 
longer term kind of programs that are free. Some of them are harder to get into, but there's definitely resources out there to at least start a baseline knowledge. And then the number one thing is don't be afraid to lean into a conversation and have them early and often. That's what's going to do the preventative work and not let a person get to, we call it the stair step to burnout, right? So that Mm -hmm. they're not in crisis mode, having the conversations early and often so that, you know, and, and there's not a perfect way to peer. It's really about being authentic and genuine. Just being real. Yeah. And letting them know you care, you know? Yeah. So even if you're a small department, you know, use, use your people, your people are your greatest assets for that. Yep. I agree with that a hundred percent because I've seen it happen and I've seen it work. So good stuff. Yeah. And we're just, we're just getting started. (laughs) This is fun. I love it. I love seeing what you're doing. I love hearing all the stories. I love, there's a lot of, in all of the ones I've listened to so far, there's just so many common threads, you know, and, I've seen it now. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're seeing it, right? I've seen it for for years running the referral program and doing trainings and all of that and the stories that you hear. Um, And and their their events are different, obviously, but a lot of very similar common threads that are interwoven through that. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the question becomes, if we can get our our safety and our tactical response to a place where we're not having a ton of um, deaths on duty due to that. Why can't we lower it for, for suicide? And I think that's the question and it's, it's breaking the stigma and through education so that people know that it's okay to ask for help. hundred percent. Those two together, right? Education and breaking that stigma. I think that's, what's going to change it. I do too. And it's people caring enough to have the conversations. That's the education piece, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes those conversations can can be difficult, but they're very necessary. Yeah. You know, that brings up a really good point. And it, which is sometimes it's not a fear leaning into a conversation is not a fear of burdening someone or a fear of, um, but sometimes it's a person saying, I don't, what if they tell me, something that I don't know how to handle, you know? Um, And that's when knowing some of the resources in your community or some of the national resources out there can be hugely helpful. Um, Just to, you know what, I do have something in my back pocket or I have someone I can call um, that way if you find yourself in that. But, But again, there's not a right way to have a conversation. You know, there's just, it's just being genuine in that. And so don't let the fear of saying the right thing get in your way of having a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah. And something else that I've noticed is it tends to be regional in some aspects of it, you know? So I've talked to several guys, North Dallas and above, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to get those guys because a lot of those departments are pretty squared away, you know, with mental health stuff. There's still some that are lacking, but um, getting all those people together, whether it be just peer team guys mm-hmm. and start sharing all the, those resources together and just make it more of a statewide thing instead of just a North Dallas yeah. regional type of thing. So yeah, we got some stuff. And in the works. One of the things, at least in the Metroplex, and I'm not sure how that looks elsewhere, but um, the Metroplex does have some really good regional peer support response teams. 
mm-hmm. um, which is a phenomenal thing to know because if you have something like when Vault Springs didn't have a critical incident response team, um, yep. and you guys are pretty small already. So if your guys are impacted, it's likely you don't want to respond for your own people anyway, because it's so close to home, you know? Right. Um, yep. So knowing that there's these regional peer teams out there and, and peer teams will get deployed and activated and come out and help. And there's some phenomenal resources out there. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen already too. And it was amazing. It. Yeah. Yeah. So stuff works. We just got to utilize it, you know, yeah. be, be open about it, be open, ready to talk about it, breaking that stigma, talking to people like you, the professionals that know how this stuff works. And then, that's part of breaking that stigma. It's good stuff. I'll tell you what, we we know stuff because we have letters behind our name, but you guys know it all. You know, there's nothing more powerful than the power of a peer. Yeah. Um, because somebody who can sit across from you and say, I get you, mm-hmm. you know, I, I get it. They don't have to say anything more than that. It's that whole yeah. concept of, I get it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, and there's nothing more powerful. Yeah. It's just actually sitting down and having that conversation that matters. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Goodry, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I've been so excited that you've been doing this. So I'm just excited. I got extended the opportunity to do it. I yeah. appreciate it and all that you're and- doing for the world of first responders and the stories that are getting told through this um, avenue and, all of that. I think it's phenomenal. We just scratched a few of the subjects that there's many more out there, you know, that need to be had. So thank you for your willingness to come on and just share your knowledge, which is good knowledge. I've got other things in works. So I'm hoping to have the whole group on soon. And maybe well, that do it like have a, to be an eight-hour training. That it's going to be a long podcast. <laughs> I, I, I probably intend for it to be right. Yeah. Uh, I want to do a certain format with y'all. You know, kind of a question and answer type thing. So we got to figure out how we can make that happen and, and yeah. do it. But um, I'm excited about that because I think it'll be good for the whole community. So and we would love to. We like yeah. I said, we like we could talk about this all day, every day. So for sure. well thank you for coming on um just real quick anybody out there that's just struggling uh whatever it may be you know suicide ideation whatever it may be 988 is a suicide prevention lifeline don't be afraid to call that if you need help uh some reason you feel like you can't call them we're here you know um we have the resources get through to us on um our social media our email, uh, freeburn2023 at gmail.com. Uh, we will find you the right people, either through readiness group or whoever. So yeah. if you and need help, calls. Don't be, don't be afraid to, to reach out for sure. And that goes, um, you know, anything that readiness group can do to help whomever. Um, if you just contact um, through Matt or you can go to our re- website, readinessgrp.com. We're happy to help connect as, as much as we can as well. We do have contacts kind of all over the nation. And so we help people often try to find good fits for resources and as long as we can and, um, and connect them to resources that might be helpful as well. Yeah. Awesome group. So thank you for, for being on and then just extending that, that hand of help to all the listeners out there that we have. And, um, 
I look forward to the future and working with y'all. Me too. I'm super excited. It's going to be good. All right. Well, we'll touch base again, and we're going to continue burning that stigma one podcast at a time. Thank you, Matt. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Free Burn 2023 podcast. If you or somebody you know is in crisis, reach out to the Suicide Crisis Lifeline at 988. Or if you're looking for counseling resources, contact us at freeburn2023 at gmail.com. We'll do our best to get you where you need to be. Let's keep burning that stigma one podcast at a time.